0: The scripture reading for today is Genesis 1, 26 to 27. I'm sorry. Uh. <laughs> then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground and the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all the livestock, and to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is the bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, we um, ask that you'd be with us and near to us now. As we uh, consider your word, help us to come to it with uh, reverence and humility and joy. Give us ears to hear what you are saying to your church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Bryce. I'm the pastor here at uh, Trinity. And, um, you know, it's the time of year where students are going back to school. Um, you may be a student. You may have recently gone back to school. You may have students who are going back to school. Uh, you may teach students who are going back to school. And there's probably a few of us who aren't in one of those categories and yet still somehow our lives seem to revolve around the the, the school schedule at the end of the summer as uh, students go back to school and one of the things that we know happens at the beginning of the school year is orientation. And uh, I took one of my sons who is starting a new school this year to his freshman orientation and orientation of course is the time where Uh, We get the lay of the land and we learn what we need to know in order to successfully navigate the upcoming school year. Uh, Where the library is, where do you go to eat, where are your classes. Uh, You get to hear the principal or the president, uh, perhaps, um, welcome you, you get your ID card, you get your class schedule, you meet perhaps your teacher. Uh, Orientation is not the point of education, But it's incredibly necessary. It gives you the lay of the land to help you know what the main aspects of life on this campus will be that you need to know in order to thrive and flourish in the upcoming school year. Well, we are in, I believe, our um, fifth or maybe probably sixth week in a series in the early chapters of the book of Genesis. And the book of Genesis functions as our orientation to life in this world. Uh, Genesis doesn't tell us, Genesis 1 and 2 doesn't tell us everything that we need to know about the Christian life, but it highlights for us some of the main crucial features that we will need to be familiar with in order to, in order to successfully navigate and flourish life in our world. And, um, There's a fly here. (laughs) What we've been trying to do over the last several weeks is look at Genesis 1 and 2, which is the the beginning of this orientation to, to life in God's world. And I've been trying to tell uh, the the story as it's presented to us in Genesis 1 and 2, because often I think when we drop into a particular part of the Bible, we can very quickly move to what does this tell us about the darkness of the world that we live in, and what does this tell us about the brokenness of the world that we live in. But there are two chapters of the Bible that speak about the original goodness of creation as God intended it. And it's very important that before, yes, we know Genesis 3 is coming. We know sin is coming. We know brokenness is coming. But we have to get oriented by understanding the goodness of creation as God originally created the cosmos. And this morning, there is um, one more aspect of the goodness of God's creation that we've got to wrestle with. And that has to do with the way that God created human beings, male and female. And this comes out, especially in chapter 2. We've been working our way sequentially through Genesis 1 and 2. And we're now to the point in chapter 2 that talks about uh, the creation of Eve uh, out of Adam and often I think the temptation, when we get to this passage, um, temptation makes it sound like it's wrong, it's not wrong, but, but, but what we do with this passage is we begin to think about uh, marriage, and then that begins to get us thinking about um, gender roles, and uh, perhaps about the roles of women and men in the church, but I think if we're looking at the way that Genesis serves to orient us to life in this world, that before we think about uh, men and women in the church or men and women in relationship, there is actually a question that is logically prior to those questions that are good and necessary, and the question is simply this, what does it even mean to be male and female? Or maybe if we put the the question more pointedly, the the, the primary question is this, is there any difference between female and male? Now as soon as you ask that question, I think we have to, did you notice how it's very quiet in here? It feels, sometimes they gotta, you know, start with this creative illustration to get everybody's attention, but I could just say, we're gonna talk about gender today, and everybody is with me, right? Um, It's hard, Uh, it's complicated. As soon as we ask the question, um, everybody, perhaps, like our hackles (laughs) go up, and and we're kind of waiting on, okay, what is is he gonna say? And, the the reality is that that there are by way of implication all sorts of questions or, or Or answers or implications about the way that men and women relate to one another in the church uh, and in society, I suppose, and in marriage. But the primary question that I'm going to be spending almost all of our time together on this morning is the question of this, is there any difference between men and women? And I just want to begin by acknowledging the reality that that is a very difficult question to answer in a way that is going to feel satisfying In fact, it's entirely possible that in an hour or so, we will all leave this room and every one of us will be very dissatisfied with this sermon. I will probably be dissatisfied with this sermon. Some of you might wish that I had said more. Some of you might already be wishing that I would stop talking now. Um, For some of us talking about what it means to be female or what it means to be male is to talk about a topic that has been the source of much hurt, frustration, struggle, or difficulty in our own lives. Uh, For some of us, perhaps our relationship to our own bodies is complicated. Perhaps we have had a less than straightforward experience of coming to terms with what does it mean that I am a female or what does it mean that I am a male. Um, Perhaps the interaction of male and female has been the source of um, something less than ideal in your life, in our lives. Maybe we have been hurt by a member of the opposite gender. Maybe we have longed for a relationship that has not yet come to pass. Maybe we are divorced and we wonder when we talk about male and female, am I going to end up feeling like I'm sort of in the second tier of humanity, maybe not in my experience, but in the eyes of the Bible or in the eyes of the church. Or maybe we just think this whole thing is ridiculous. Why do we even have to bring it up? Maybe you're going, I have some vague awareness that the Bible talks about this, but why even bring it up? Because it seems like it's likely to cause uh, perhaps hurt, perhaps questions, perhaps confusion or frustration. Why even bring it up? And the answer, I think, is simply because it's here. And because of it's here in Genesis 1 and 2, in the midst of all that God has created that is very good, this is where we are told that God created us male and female. And so what that means is that gender is not just a social construct that we need to do away with, but the Bible says that in God's eyes, gender is good, and that means that God has given it to us as a gift, and it would be a tragedy to leave that gift unopened. And leaving that gift unopened does not in any way make the complicated nature of this topic any easier. Um, to highlight that, I don't want to quote two people. The first is Taylor Swift. My wife's been telling me I've been quoting too many philosophers lately. So, <laughs> Taylor Swift in her song, Nothing New, they tell you while you're young, girls go out and have your fun, and then they hunt and slay the ones who actually do it. And it goes, I think the summary is, it is complicated to be a woman in the world that we live in. On the other hand, Mike Cosper, writing in Christianity Today this week, wrote this um, in 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 a topic, basically he's saying, our culture has no conception of what it means to be a man, and not talking about it is not helping anything, but the church has a place in this conversation. What a man is, what he should be, what roles may men fill, these all seem to be beyond the scope of our culture's current conversations about masculinity. We increasingly know how to recognize and condemn toxic masculinity, and rightly so, but what about non-toxic ways to be a man? Better yet, what about going beyond merely avoiding toxicity to bring a constructive vision of masculine virtue into the midst of our moment of crisis? It's complicated, but we have to say more than, it's, than simply that it's complicated, and so the Bible um, orients us to life in this world by telling us about what it means to be male and female and giving gender to us as a gift. And so as a church, we have to be a place that can have this conversation with grace because the reality is there's nowhere else in our world that is able to have the conversation really at all. Um, It's a topic that we don't discuss. It's a topic that we yell at each other about. And I think that the only place that it might be possible is in the church. And I'm not 100% convinced that we can do that graciously. The way of grace means that we have to let God's voice through scripture be our guide. And we can talk and we can debate and we can disagree. And we of course have to listen to uh, the experience, the history, the insight of believers and unbelievers um, on this topic, but I think we have to say that we are going to talk about this graciously, and if we're going to talk about it, we're going to talk about it in light of what Scripture tells us. We're going to listen to experience, we're going to listen to research, What we're going to talk about what does the Bible teach us. We've got to normalize talking about hard issues like this because we live in a world where if we don't talk about it, it's not going undiscussed, and so our kids and our grandkids are growing up in in a culture that can't have this conversation well, but continues to tell stories that are deeply forming all of us about what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman, and so the church has got to be a place of grace in the midst of this conversation. So how does the Bible, oh, I was gonna say also, I'm breaking one of my rules on preaching this morning. I have like five or six uh, like principles, and mostly they're theological principles about interpreting the Bible, but I have a very pragmatic um, principle that I try to abide to, and it's this, don't ever open a can of worms unless you're going to shut that can of worms. And um, probably today I'm not going to be able to do that because as soon as we talk about this topic, there are so many questions, so many implications, and so if anything I say is confusing or frustrating or any other word, I would love to talk with you more about this. So what does the Bible say? Is there any difference between male and female? And the first thing that the Bible says in answer to that question is it points us to the equal dignity of both male and female, the equal dignity of female and male. Let's start with what the Bible says, Genesis 1:26 and 27. So God said, let us create man in our image. Let us create man. Now that means humanity. Let us create humanity in our image after our likeness. Then verse 27, so God created man, that is again humanity, in his image and then there are two parallel statements and that, it, that explain the way that humanity bears God's image. And in Hebrew, parallel statements are two or more statements that are presented as a, uh, the same, uh, different ways of saying the same thing that give greater meaning. And so verse 27 is, is, is a parallel statement that says the first thing, so God created them in his image, And then it explains that with two following statements. So, I have to read it. I can't think on my feet like this. (laughs) So, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So, the first thing that the Bible is telling us is that gender, male and femaleness, is inherently a part of God's good creation. In other words, God didn't create a generic human being and then separate um, human being into two genders, but rather God created man in his image, humanity in his image, as male or female. But where I think we really have to start in understanding what the Bible is telling us about the nature of our genders it, it, we have to begin by understanding that first this is telling us about who God is. Uh, and, and I mentioned this a couple weeks ago briefly when we were talking about the, the human, human race created in the image of God, that there is um, sort of the shadow in this passage, the first shadow uh, in these verses of the, what we now know of as the doctrine of the Trinity. And um, St. Augustine in the fourth century, on his book on the Trinity, famously said that what is latent in the Old Testament is patent in the New. That is what becomes clear in the New Testament in light of the incarnation of Jesus and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which is that God is uh, a triune uh, Godhead. We see the shadows of that reality here in Genesis 1. And two. What is latent in the Old Testament is patent in the New. The triune nature of God is revealed. God says, Let us create man in our image. Who is he talking to? He hasn't created anyone else yet. Uh, God is talking to God's self in the plural. And what, what this is telling us is that God, there is only one God, but that God is not just a me. God is also an us. The doctrine of the Trinity says that, in the words of the New City Catechism, which our high schoolers and middle schoolers will be looking at this question in uh, six weeks, I think, um, working through the New City Catechism, there is only one God who exists eternally in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then this is crucially important. They are the same in substance equal in power and in glory. One God, three persons, and then the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Sometimes we talk about God the Father like, like God is the Father. And then there are these other persons that are sort of like, I don't know, less God somehow or uh, like the Holy Spirit was an afterthought um, that's wrong. And it's not just sort of wrong, it, it's wrong in a way that to deny uh, the equal value, dignity, and worth of the three persons of the Trinity is to put yourself outside of the bounds of Christianity. Does that make sense? It's a very, very important reality to say, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one in substance, equal and in power and in glory. This is the most fundamental belief in the Christian tradition. That God is one, that there is only one God, that Christianity believes in a God who reveals himself in three persons, and yet we are not in any sense polytheists. Now why am I stressing this? Because as soon as God reveals himself to be one God in three persons, in the midst of a culture that knows only polytheism, it's going to become very confusing, isn't it? And so it is in our own time. There's only one God, three persons, one in substance, equal in power and in glory. Uh, The Father is not the boss. The Son is not somehow less than the Father. They're equal in every way. Now, why is that important? Because look at what we just read. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We bear the image of a God who is a diversity of persons. And what that means is that humanity, the human race, male and female, uh, cannot fully bear the image of God unless we are also inherently diverse. In other words, maleness alone does not fully be- reflect the image of God to our world. Femaleness alone does not fully reflect the image of God. It is the diversity and yet unity of the human race, male and female, that that are sufficient to reflect the diversity of the triune God to our world. Now having said that, here's the point. Just as the Bible stresses that the three persons of the Godhead are equal in power and in glory, and it is heresy to suggest otherwise, So the Bible on its opening page tells us that God creates male and female bearers of the image of God and we are, in terms of dignity, value, worth, equal. Now, you might be thinking, that really shouldn't be all that controversial. Okay, granted. But let's think about the world in which the Bible is revealed. And as soon as you think about the world in which the Bible is given, and you know, um, Genesis was revealed through Moses to the people of Israel as they come out of 400 years of slavery in Egypt. Uh, in, a, in, in a world, in, a, in, in an ancient world, and there is no other ancient uh, tradition, custom, culture. Uh, probably very few tribes certainly know ancient religions that speak of women in this way. And that's just a fact of history. Every tradition, traditional religion, um, speaks of women as being inferior to men. Greek philosophy, in many ways, the forerunner to Western civilization, um, Uh, did not believe that, in general that women were equal with men. Aristotle argued that women were mentally weaker and less capable of reason and virtue than men and therefore naturally held subordinate, inferior status in society. Every ancient culture and religion basically believed that women were inferior to men, that their purpose was to provide for the sexual gratification of men and to bear children. Here's the point. The Bible says on its opening page that women are equal in dignity, value, and worth with men. This is unparalleled in human history. In fact, nothing about this passage presents the woman in terms of her functionality, her fertility. Uh, That would be utterly countercultural in the ancient world. In the Roman Empire... Uh, where the New Testament, where Jesus lived and died and was raised again, where where the church comes to life. In the world of the New Testament, exposure was a common practice. Exposure was the practice of taking a newborn infant that was unwanted and simply leaving that infant out to be exposed to the elements to die. And it was particularly practiced with female infants. Why? Because in a world that views the worth of a human being in terms of what it can do and produce and provide for the family. In a world, in an agrarian culture, uh, having multiple sons to carry on the family name is viewed as a honorable good thing, but you don't need as many females. And so female infants were often, by the thousands, exposed and left to die. But when Christianity begins to spread in the Roman Empire, Christians begin taking those exposed little girls in and building orphanages. And everywhere that Christianity has gone, um, the status of women... Is elevated. Now you might say it hasn't gone far enough. Okay. But what do you need to go further? Do you need a view of women that says women are just as strong as men, women can do better things than men, that pits the genders against one another, or do you need? a religion, a worldview, a view of truth that says women and men are equal in dignity and value because their worth as human beings stems not from what they do, not from their function, but from whose image they reflect. Equal in dignity. That's the first answer on the first page. It's expanded on um, the second page of the Bible. In Genesis 2, verse 18, it says, It is not good for man to be alone. And um, I think I'm actually required to say this next sentence. Every pastor um, preaching on this passage says this. This is the one thing in all of God's good creation that God says is not good. It is not good for man to be alone. And the question that I want to ask us this morning is, Why? Why is it not good for man to be alone? Because out of everything that God has created, it's just fine for many, like the birds of the sea, or birds of the sea, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, um, are just fine alone. Or I was thinking about it (laughs) this week as I was studying this passage and my younger brother drives a tugboat in Alaska and he on our family group chat has uh, sent in the last couple weeks a couple pictures of polar bears and you know he sends this picture of a polar bear that he's taken from his boat and, um, and we've talked about this and one of the questions that came up is is this a male or female polar bear and instantly you know as we think about this we say, well it's a, it's a female polar bear and we know because there are two cubs with her because male polar bears it's just fine for them to be alone. In fact, I I remember seeing in a documentary somewhere else that towards the end of the season as they're preparing to hibernate, when food gets scarce, that male polar bears will actually turn on female and even their own cubs. Um, It is just fine for a male polar bear, for Papa Bear to be alone, but it is not good for a male human to be alone. Why? Why is it not good? Because we were made in the image of a God who is not alone. We are incomplete on our own. We were made in the image of a God who exists eternally in community, and so it is not good for man to be alone. We need each other, equal in dignity, value, and worth. That's the first answer to the question. Now the second, this is where we're going to do the heavy lifting. Is there any difference between male and female? We have to start by talking about what we have in common because it is greater and in order to prevent misunderstanding. But is there any difference between male and female? And I think in a word, the answer is yes. We're not exactly the same. There is a difference. Uh, Throughout the creation account, what we have seen over and over again is that God created the world using paired opposites. We see this throughout creation, darkness and light, water and dry land, fish of the sea, birds of the air, over and over again, paired opposites. The whole world is built on paired opposites in terms, uh, we we know that even more than what's revealed here in Genesis, uh, you know, at, at a deeper level, proton and electron. We see it throughout creation. It is fundamental to the world that we live in. And so when we reach the crowning work of God's creation, is the creation of human beings, it is not surprising that we see here again paired opposites, female and male, sharing dignity and yet distinct, different from one another. Now we have a hard time talking about difference in our world without value judgment sneaking into the discussion of difference. But the idea that men and women female and male are exactly the same and that any difference is superficial. Um, I I know there's been periods in human history where that has been the consensus, that that any distinction between male and female is superficial. I think that has largely gone away now. In fact, one of the most influential books um, in the last 40 years on gender is a book written by uh, an NYU professor named Carol Gilligan, a book called In a Different Voice, not a believer, she's a social social psychologist. She would call herself a feminist and she argues essentially in that book that in general, women are driven by an ethic of care while men tend to be driven by an ethic of justice. She says that as men and women move towards maturity, again, this doesn't fit every man, every woman, but she says in general, men as they move towards maturity tend to move towards greater independence And women tend to move toward a greater sense of interconnectedness. Now, I'm not saying that that's exactly what the Bible is saying. I think it's reflective, perhaps, of of what the Bible tells us. But what it's saying is that somebody who is a leading voice um, from a non-Christian perspective is saying there is a difference between male and female. So how does the Bible describe this difference Let's just remember before I read this, this is what the Bible says. Genesis 2, 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now when we hear that word helper, we're all thinking, "Uh uh-oh, here we go. Um, What does that mean? You know, in in the old King James, it said, it was translated, I will make a help meet for him. And that sounds, we don't know exactly what that means, but it doesn't sound good. Uh, help a mate for him or she's like a piece of meat or what does it mean what it means is that she will meet his need with help uh, the hebrew word for helper is the word Azer, and actually we've already all said it a couple times this morning it was in our call to worship psalm 30 hear O lord and be merciful to me O lord be my helper Psalm 121, I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help, my azer, come from? My help comes from Yahweh, the Lord, who made heaven and earth. Helper does not imply inferiority. Helper implies distinction, difference. Think about it like this. My oldest son is learning to drive, and I am helping him learn how to drive. Now, why am I able to help him learn how to drive? because I already know how to drive. If we were exactly the same, I would be of no help to him. (laughs) We would be sharing our ignorance together. I am able to help him because I already know something that he doesn't know. I am able to help him because I'm different than him. So what Genesis is telling us is that our difference, the differences between male and female are not merely superficial, they are not Skin deep, if you like. In fact, Genesis is honoring and dignifying our bodies, um, I would argue, unlike any other religion which uh, says that gender is incidental to our humanity. Genesis is honoring and dignifying human bodies by showing us that we are not just different because we have slightly different body parts, but rather who we are at the deepest level, body and soul, is reflected in our physical bodies. And we have a hard time talking about difference in function or difference in role without immediately translating that into a difference in value. Uh, But actually, Genesis 3, which we're going to look at in a couple weeks, shows us that it is only when sin enters into the world that this difference becomes problematic. Genesis 3 shows us that it's the curse that comes from sin that results in God saying to the woman, your desire will be for your husband. You will not know who you are without your husband, and he will rule over you. It's the curse of human being that takes the inherent good difference of human beings, male and female, and wants to overemphasize that, that results in abuse. What the Bible is showing us is that God created human beings, male and female, with equal dignity, and yet different from one another. And here's the only thing that I'm gonna say then about roles, does it make sense then, that God would go to such lengths to demonstrate the equality and value, and yet distinction between the genders? And then say, now in every way and every role, go out and behave in exactly the same way. I would suggest that it doesn't make a lot of sense. It makes sense that if male and female are distinct in certain ways, that there would be some roles more suitable to one gender or the other, and that God calls us vocationally to those roles. So what are they? And the Bible says very, very little about what those roles actually look like. And when we begin to talk about gender roles, typically we're talking about things that have been um, uh, culturally instilled values that the Bible actually does not really speak about. The New Testament talks in a, little, in a limited way about distinctions in marriage and in the church as we live out the gospel story in covenant community with one another that we enact the dramatic story of the gospel of Christ who loves his bride by giving himself up for her. But it says very little about stereotypical gender roles. I do think that there are three cautions that are important to make uh, about gender roles. I'm talking mostly about gender, but about the way that we think about gender roles. There are, there are three distinctions that human beings are always, uh, or at least in the culture that we live, that we tend to make. And, and the first I would call the traditionalist idol or the traditionalist heir. And, and what this heir looks like is, is an overemphasis on the distinction between the genders. Uh, it, it might perhaps... Uh, pay lip service to the equality of genders but functionally tends to undermine the equality of male and female. It tends to focus on the externals but instead the Bible invites us into a dance where we've got to work out in covenant community and marriage and in the church what does it actually look like for males to play the role of Christ and for females to play the role of the church as we uh, love and serve one another. Traditionalist error overemphasizes the distinction between male and female. The second error, I don't even know what word to use um, here because I think any um, label is, is going to sound pejorative and that's not my intention. But So I'm going I'm to call this tentatively the, the deconstructionist error. And, and this is sort of the opposite error. This, the, the deconstructionist error is an overemphasis on the equality that functionally denies any difference between male and female. Essentially what this is is to say that if you talk about distinction or difference in role or in function, inevitably a difference in value is brought into the equation. And um, therefore, we have to reject any talk of meaningful difference or distinction because it results in inequality. Um, C.S. Lewis, uh, you know, there, there are things C.S. Lewis says that everybody's heard, uh, not everybody, but you know what I mean. And um, I'm gonna quote something that C.S. Lewis said that I, you probably haven't heard before. C.S. Lewis, in a, in a more obscure place, he says this, in heaven there will be no equality. He was not running for president in the United States when he said that. I'm sorry, I, sh- I'm tr- I-, I meant to try to limit my humor today because some people may hate what I'm saying right now and I don't want it to sound like I'm piling on. Forgive me. Um, but, but, but what he's talking about is equality in function, not in value. Uh, and what he's saying when he says that in heaven there will be no equality. What he's saying is that when we are perfect, we will be able to recognize, to put it crudely, that some people do some things better than others. And that growing into perfection or that maturity is not about denying differences or denying distinctions, but growing in maturity actually involves growing in appreciation for the inequality between me and somebody who does what I do much better than I do. And as an example of that, I was thinking about um, like almost 20 years ago, Ashley and I lived in Scotland and we had a friend who was a pastor in London and we were passing through London once and spent an afternoon with my friend uh, David who I, he, he studied in his undergrad either like art criticism or he might have actually been an artist, I can't remember, but I knew that he, he had an understanding of an appreciation for art and we asked him if he would go to us to the, to the Tate Modern uh, Gallery. And uh, if you've been to London, you know the Tate Modern is housed in the former um, Battersea Power Station right on the Thames River. It's like this huge museum filled with modern arts. And so we asked David, would you go with us and kind of walk us around and explain what we're seeing, if if you're able to. And David said, I will take you to the Tate Modern, but only on one condition. And we're like, okay, what's that? And he said, if we go into this museum, you are not allowed to say, I can do that. Now, why did he say that? Because modern art, you know, is like Jackson Pollock, there's paint splatters, and You're looking at things that don't look like things, to put it crudely, and he's saying, I will not go into a room with you where you are going to look at a famous million-dollar work of art and say, I can do that. Why did he say that? What he's saying is, you might walk into a room and say, I don't understand this, but maturity looks like being able to walk into a room and saying, I don't understand this. And it is immaturity that doesn't understand something and says, therefore, it's bad, or therefore, it's something I'm going to belittle. Distinction does not inherently mean inequality in value. In heaven, there will be no equality. He's talking about in function and role, not in human dignity. In the presence of something truly great, maturity looks like being able to recognize and articulate that difference. The third air or idol that we tend to fall into is the consumerist air. And the air of consumerism is to look at everything in the world and say, what will this do for me? and to think about everything that we encounter and every person that we encounter and ask the question, what will this person do for me? So uh, in terms of gender, often what this looks like is is male and female entering into a relationship with one another, not to serve one another, but in order to mutually use one another. And so, and I think we have to acknowledge that this is a problem in the church, um, too, in in Christian marriage, a, a Christian marriage that says, I am here to use you for my fulfillment, and in exchange, I'm willing to let you use me for your fulfillment, is less than what God has called us to. The consumerist heir or idol fails to recognize the inherent dignity and the appropriate difference, reducing all people to the level of functionality. And then what it does is turns around and makes functionality the standard of morality. Three heirs we're constantly making, each takes a reductionist view of who we are, male and female, bearing the image of God together. The Bible is orienting us to life in this world by inviting us into the wonder and mystery of who we are. Is that easy to live out? Well, no, of course it's not. But the Bible is giving us a great gift, pointing us to the equal dignity and yet difference between male and female in a world that is constantly falling to the right or to the left off one side of the road or the other. Because we know in a deep way that we need one another, and yet the goal cannot simply be uh, for men to act like, or for women to act like men. And the goal cannot simply be to chasten toxic masculinity by telling men to act more like women. And so we've got to work out together what this looks like in covenant community, which is an exercise in grace. I realize that in some ways, I have actually said very little in this sermon about what this actually looks like. But my hope is to help us begin to normalize this conversation. To begin to say, we're not exactly the same. What does that mean? We're gonna have to talk about that. We're gonna have to work it out together. But truly what Genesis is doing here is inviting us into the wonder and mystery of who God himself is. You see, ultimately what this conversation about gender is doing for us is it is priming us to appreciate more fully the mystery of the triune God who created us and who has come to make himself known to us in Jesus. And this orientation to life in Genesis is laying the foundation on which the gospel will be built more fully and completely when it is revealed in the New Testament. See, the creator God reveals to us in the New Testament what he is doing by, in a sense, pulling back the curtain in order to show us what love really looks like. And what we see when he does that is that the triune God who exists eternally in three persons who is one in substance and in equal and in power and glory. In an ontological sense, the members of the Trinity are equal with one another. Yet in the economy of salvation, the Son says, I will defer to the will of the Father. And I will come to earth. And I will take on human flesh. And I will empty myself. And I will live a life of perfection. And I will take upon myself the shame of the cross. It was not weakness that sent Jesus to the cross, far, far from it, far from it. We see in Jesus, having Jesus having lived a perfect life, goes to the cross, sacrificing himself in order to show us what love really looks like. On the cross, we see true strength demonstrated, not in self-fulfillment, but in self-sacrifice. On the cross, we see what real leadership looks like, not using authority for selfish gain, but Jesus giving up his rights, his comfort, his privilege in order to make his beloved beautiful. On the cross, we see that God intends to relate to us. Not as a king to his subjects only. Not only as a father relates to children, but even more so as a husband relates to his bride, loving her to the uttermost. On the cross, Christ stands at the altar, as it were, standing there like uh, the groom on his wedding day, looking down the aisle of human history. And in the greatest act of love, he sacrifices himself to pay the price for his bride, the church's betrayal that she might be presented as a pure, spotless, radiant bride. So here's the thing. When you see yourself in that place as a member of the church of Christ, the object of his affection, it begins to help us sort of open our hand, unclench our fists, lean into what God is inviting us to consider And to behold, when you see yourself as the object of his affection, while we were indifferent to him at best, we begin to have grace for people who are different than us. Because Christ loved us while we were very different from him. When the church collectively sees ourselves as the object of Christ, Christ's loving sacrifice, it allows us to open our fist and the church is transformed from a place that rigidly enforces gender stereotypes into a place of welcome, into a place of welcome where those who struggle are invited into the dance and we can begin to work out what this looks like together in covenant community. I know in many ways I've said very little about what this actually looks like So let me finish with this. All this sermon is is an invitation. It's an attempt to say the Bible puts this before us and defines for us the broad boundaries in which we can have this conversation. And we can begin to treat each other with grace as we work this out in practice. And as we do that, we are a reflection of the image of God in us to the world around us. Amen, would you pray with me? Oh God, this is, in many ways it feels quite clear and simple and yet the working it out is so often painful and difficult. We pray that you would help us. We pray that you would be with us, that you would be near us, that you would help us to Uh, experience not just to listen and hear these words but to experience the reality that Jesus our faithful husband has given himself for us and that seeing his sacrifice his great act of love on our behalf we would be um, transformed and that we would be better able to graciously follow you where you lead us for the sake of our world. We pray, Jesus, in your name, amen.